Hood by J.M. Bullpit Read by Jack Collard Chapter 11 Alvaro Garcia's Gamble Somewhere in the top left-hand corner of South America lies the ruined basilica of Olena de Thinna. It is, or rather was, a huge church, made all the more impressive because some time ago, ministries decided to build it on top of a high plateau surrounded by a range of tall, craggy mountains. A stunning place of heart-stopping views, it is easy to see why Elena de Thinna was chosen as a location to worship God. But the honest residents of the town situated beneath the ruins have long forsaken it as a sacred site. The approach to the ruined basilica once a well-tended sweeping lawn of coarse grass, stretching for over a mile and a half along the summit of the plateau, is now used as a landing strip for the occasional aircraft hopping stealthily over the mountain peaks. But no food, no clothing, medical supplies or tourists are shuttled in for the people of the town of Elena de Thinna. In fact, Any unwelcome plane or army helicopter might pass a mere 50 feet above the plateau and never know it was the location for a landing strip at all, so well disguised is it with fake boulders and synthetic bushes. For Elena de Thinna is a place where some of the most dangerous people in the world ship out some of the most dangerous substances in the world to the rest of the world. Nestor Soto, or Nunu to his friends, of which he had very few, drew deeply on his expensive Cuban cigar and then threw the stub over the edge of the plateau. He watched the glowing end cartwheel and spin down the several hundred feet of cliff face to disappear in the darkness below. Nestor had seen many men tumble down the same cliff. 
He had thrown off a few of them himself, and if he had it his way tonight, at least one more shattered and crumpled body would be lying at the bottom of the cliff by the time dawn broke. Luis. Luis, said Nestor, speaking into his concealed microphone. You had better be in position ready. See, si, General, Nestor's earpiece crackled back. Vincent. See, si, General. Nestor went through the list of his thirty men hidden in and around the bacilla ready to spring the ambush. They all chimed the same response. Emilio. Si, General. Mario. Si, Jean. Si, Nunu. Nestor clenched his fists and grimaced. Mario, when this is done tonight, you and I will have a serious chat. Again. Si, Nunu. Mario was Nestor's brother-in-law and the bane of his professional life as a drugs lord. But Nini, Nestor's wife, would only allow Nunu to punish her brother in the gentlest of fashions. If anyone else had dared make Nestor look weak and indecisive in front of his men, they would not be around for long to tell them of it. But Mario continued to do so under the protection of his sister, Nestor's own wife. What if Mario was accidentally shot tonight? Nestor considered the idea for a moment, but he knew Nini would find him out. Nestor sighed and gazed up into the sky. He wondered why the stars were wobbling this evening, probably high cloud. It was a pity. Nestor thought there was nowhere better on the planet to view stars. Nowhere better on the planet at all. The drone of a distant engine sounded, and Nestor turned towards the mountains to the north, but there was nothing to be seen. He hardly expected someone making the deal of this magnitude to advertise their presence to the authorities with wing lights, but normally he could make out the silhouette of the aircraft against the sky, even in twilight. Okay, everyone, Nestor announced, addressing all of the hidden snipers with night sights, as well as the six men around him. Nothing is to be done to Alvaro Garcia or his men until I light my first match, understand? A chorus of C echoed around the plateau with one C Nunu slightly after the others. Nestor Soto was a stout, balding man of fairly small stature who had survived until his mid-fifties in a criminal business where most of the competition had either been murdered or were in prison. Nestor was doing well, and he knew it, but he was still glad of the six hulking men around him for protection. Alvaro Garcia would expect to see Nestor Soto with a small number of men. It would look suspicious if he did not appear to have any protection at all. Only a fool would attempt such a deal without any muscle whatsoever. General, a voice crackled on Nestor's earpiece. Who is it? Nestor barked back. Manuel, on the road, replied the sentry. From his photograph, it is Alvaro Garcia. He is coming. By road? Si, General. On a motorbike and sidecar. A motorbike? spluttered Nestor. This was unexpected. Alvaro Garcia was clearly playing by his own set of rules. Any authorities following? No, General. You are sure? Answer well now, your life depends on it, understand? See, si, General. There was silence for a moment. No one follows, 
How many of them? Two. Alvaro Garcia approaches with one other, Nestor informed all his men. They are on motorbike. Nothing has changed. The drugs lord took up his binoculars and followed the progress of the motorbike's headlamp, blazing through the town of Elena de Thinna below, which was strangely empty of people. Nestor had heard of Alvaro Garcia, of course, and seen the photograph sent to him. There was not a single criminal on the continent who had not heard of Garcia's exploits in the audacious Santiago heist or the legendary Caracas caper. Millions had been stolen from two international companies that could afford to lose it, and no one had got so much as a paper cut in the escapades. Not long after, when untraceable millions of dollars were donated to orphanages and charities for the homeless in Bogota, Lima, La Paz and Rio de Janeiro, Alvaro Garcia and his gang began to assume the status of folkloric heroes among the people of South America. Nestor did not mind this at all. Alvaro Garcia had not robbed him and, until now, the celebrated thief had not drifted into his line of business. Now, it seemed, Alvaro Garcia had turned his talents to narcotics. That was why Nestor felt he had to make an example of him for any other would-be drugs barons, even if the thief did have the guts to face him with the protection of only one man. Alvaro Garcia compensated for his oversteering as he came out of the corner, steadied the motorbike, smoothed down his moustache and threw an apologetic glance at his passenger in the sidecar. He need not have bothered, for underneath the most improbable facial hair on the continent, Alvaro Garcia's companion, Kiki Segundo, had focused his mind to filter out the noise and movement of the vehicle in order to detect the slightest threat of danger. The deserted main street of Alana de Thinna alarmed them both for its total lack of human movement. The place had all the hallmarks of a ghost town, with its tumble-down buildings, the despondent dirge of the bell in the basilica, the mangy dogs cowering at the doorways. But washing was strung up to dry in the high mountain winds, tables stood outside houses with unfinished hands of cards, and crude children's toys dotted the road, forcing the motorbike to slalom for fear of destroying them. Both men guessed that the real risks awaited them not from the poor, exploited people of the tower, but on top of the plateau before the basilica. As the motorbike strained up a section of the road possessed of a particularly steep gradient, a breeze tugged at their preposterous moustaches, making the hair quiver and tickle their cheeks. They both let their guards down for a moment and allowed themselves a grin at each other. In all honesty, one could hardly glance at the other without bursting out into laughter, so strange was their appearance to one another. Alvaro Garcia, with his uncommonly slight frame astride the fat, vintage motorbike, and his athletic companion with the handlebar moustache perched in the sidecar. Even during the precarious times of high criminality, they often found something to raise a laugh. Finally, Emerging out of the neglected, forsaken streets of Elena de Thinna, Alvaro Garcia pointed the chuttering motorbike and sidecar out onto the plateau, only to veer away from the group of men waiting for him there. 
An erratic session of driving followed, which did nothing to instill a sense of awe in Nestor Soto's gang. The motorbike headed on a collision course with a boulder, but swerved away at the last moment, allowing the passenger in the sidecar to swipe at it to reveal its plastic nature. Nestor Soto watched their antics with a masterly expression of arrogant indulgence, which he hoped did not portray his confusion inside. There was no doubt he was impressed by the fact that Alvaro Garcia had correctly guessed the true fabric of his boulders and bushes. No other visitor had. But he was somewhat short of impressed, insulted even, that anyone would be so foolish as to confront him effectively alone. Nestor sighed as he played between his fingers the match that was to signal the end of the outlaw now advancing towards him. Easing himself off the motorbike, almost before it had sputtered to a halt, Alvaro Garcia approached the drug lord with his arm outstretched, as if they were old friends about to go for coffee and chew the fat. Nestor Soto was conscious that the passenger did not move from his position in the sidecar. No doubt he was heavily armed. It did not worry Nestor unduly. His men were professional enough to eliminate the serious threat first. In fact, looking at Alvaro Garcia, Nestor wondered how he could ever be considered a threat to anyone over the age of ten. "'Good evening to you, Senor Soto,' exclaimed Alvaro Garcia, grabbing Nestor's hand and pumping his arm. "'That's some grip you have there, Senor. I bet you can punch your weight and above. It is no wonder that they call you El Gallo de Pelea. Good evening, gentlemen.' Nestor Soto wanted to explode with laughter at the tiny figure before him. How did he ever hope to get away with the outlandish mustachio, the female voice, and the feeble handshake in their line of business? What was crime coming to when this shabby little bottom dweller was allowed to swim with the sharks? Call me Nestor. How may we help each other, Alvoro Garcia? I am honoured that you should have asked to meet me. You have become a legend. Alvaro Garcia waved a hand dismissively, as if swatting an annoying fly. Tackling a couple of one-off ventures is nothing. You have survived and thrived for thirty-five years in your profession. That shows true talent and wisdom, senor. For a moment, Nestor Soto ceased twirling the match in his hands. Something like a whiff of regret floated over his mind at the thought of having to kill this strange, respectful, stupid, brave figure. I am here to advise you to get out of your profession, Nestor Soto, Alvaro Garcia continued. Nestor smiled. Well, at least they were talking his kind of business now. His fingers played the match between them once more. I see... And why should I consider such a thing? You will accept such a thing because the deal I am about to offer you is the most richly paid and perilous you will ever undertake. If it goes well, you will be a stupidly rich man but in mortal danger for the rest of your life. You are used to that, I think. If it goes badly, you will be dead. There is no forward and no continuing on with your career after this deal. In fact... I wouldn't blame you for hiding from it. 
Nestor Sota used the wooden end of the match to pick at some invisible morsel of food between a canine and a molar. If this is your ploy to grab my attention, Alvaro Garcia, it has succeeded. You have it. In the invisible flying craft hovering a mere couple of hundred feet above the activities on the plateau, Robbie looked on with fascination as Vasily finished supervising the last of the targeting. Back in the main body of the aircraft, 40 representatives of Soon, Diane and Wanda's bodyguards reclined in special chairs that had been tilted in order to get better angles for their shots. They shouldered sleek, black rifles, almost as long as their bodies, and every weapon was wired up with a single cable to a central power source fixed to the ceiling of the craft. All the bodyguards were donned in unique goggles that afforded them a shared vision of their targets. There was no need for windows on the hood, because its passengers could just peer through the unique material that formed the sides of the craft as if there was nothing there at all. Therefore, with the goggles on, it seemed as if sixty sliver-thin blue targeting lines reached down from the sky to illuminate Nestor Soto's men hidden in and around the Basilla. Vasily held up a pair of goggles to his eyes to check, once again, that the bodyguards in the aircraft had covered every one of Nestor's snipers. Only then did he utter an innocuous fire. Forty rifle triggers were squeezed simultaneously and fired through the walls of the aircraft. Robbie observed absolutely nothing happened whatsoever. Something must have gone wrong with the technology, Robbie thought. But if so, why wasn't there panic in the aircraft? And why was Vasily sitting back in his chair with a contented expression spreading across his face? Grandma and Ivor were exposed and vulnerable, and their excessive facial hair only made it easier for Nestor Soto's snipers to target them. That's it? asked Robbie. That's it, echoed Vasily. All gunmen but the bodyguards around Soto and one other is now useless to him. Dead? No, not dead, just, uh... Vasily's left hand twirled around like a limp propeller, trying to generate the power for a correct translation. Incapacitated is correct, yes? Uh, Put out of action? Yes. We keep a dozen scrambler rifles on Soto's bodyguards just in case. It's standard procedure, but Ivor, he has the pride to take them on himself. But the rifles didn't do anything. So sorry, but they did, replied Madame Soon from the bank of seats behind him. You must bear in mind, Robert, that these days the world is conquered quietly. A device does not need to bring about a spectacular effect to be effective. These rifles are weapons I have developed. In the West, they might be marketed as synaptic scramblers, but... They are not on the market, she added emphatically, as Diane and Wanda leaned in closer to listen. You have been taught that the brain communicates to the body through electrical signals transmitted along nerves in the spine, no doubt, continued Sun. These weapons deliver a massive electrical pulse, 
to disrupt or jam those signals for a short time. Nestor Soto's snipers have been rendered quite immobile for a short time, I can assure you. Robbie did not question his aunt soon. He had seen enough incredible sights on this one trip alone to understand that the world he lived in, the everyday reality for most people, now seemed a quaint and cosmetic as puppet theatre. Behind the three aunts, the pilot of the hood twisted in the inner frame of his huge tricircular gyroscope. It was difficult to discern the pilot at all, so immersed was he in various pieces of technology which broke up any human lines and took on the appearance of parasites latched onto their host. The vessel split up into two levels. The bottom section of the hull contained a second, smaller futuristic craft, while circling above it on a wide, luxurious gantry were the bodyguards, peering out through the near-invisible, shimmering walls at the scene below. Immediately after their launch, Robbie had watched in awe as the vessel effortlessly manoeuvred through the entrance of the cavern beneath his grandma's house and out into the Avon Gorge. Robbie just had time to notice a couple of fireworks erupting above them. Those rockets are ours, Robbie, his grandma had explained. Ivor was still livid about Robbie's inclusion on the mission and was not speaking to either of them at the time. We automatically set off a couple of fireworks every time this craft leaves the cavern. The rockets emerge from a pipe just behind the tree line to explode above Clifton Observatory. It's a... Uh... Low-tech solution, I know, but it does take away any unwanted attention from the inevitable shimmering of the craft in the gorge. Never fails. Everybody turns to look at the fireworks. Then Bristol, the Avon Gorge, southern Wales and the west country of England, and finally the British Isles receded into the distance at an astonishing speed. Robbie found it difficult to judge the most astonishing aspect of the trip. Certainly, venturing into space in a vessel with seemingly non-existent walls ranked as the most exhilarating experience of his life, although Robbie believed the shock of reaching up and out of the Earth's atmosphere had yet to sink in. This also meant that the aircraft had completed the trip from Bristol to the far side of South America in less than two hours. However, the space experience had competition – one of the most alarming and intriguing spectacles Robbie had ever witnessed was watching the physical transformations of Ivor and his grandma Gwen. Madame Sun, with about half a dozen of her own medical technicians, supervised the facial feature remapping operation, as she called it. I've been working on Alvaro Garcia for touching on four years now. I quite look forward to reacquainting myself with the old rascal, Grandma Gwen explained, laying down in one of the adjustable seats in the compact medical bay just off from the hold of the aircraft while technicians fussed around her. Initially, he was simply a foothold in South America. This is Deanne's turf, really, but she cannot be expected to police all of the criminal activities on this continent. We barely oversee half of them now as it is. Sun and I decided to create an eccentric criminal personality and throw his weight around. Alvaro Garcia soon arrived and, my, did he shake a few branches. What a kerfuffle. It is not only the authorities who want him. 
You could make yourself millions in any currency by turning Alvaro over to any number of criminal gangs on this continent. Please, remain still now, Gwen, advised Sun, who was personally supervising the operation. Prepare yourself, sweetie, said Gwen, patting her grandson's hand. When I get out of this contraption, I won't see myself. In another part of the medical bay, a small team of technicians bustled around Ivor. He had adjusted his wheelchair to match the exact tilt of Gwen's own seat in order to standardise the operation and lay there as docile and as trusting as a domestic dog while the medical personnel rigged him up for the change. The moment two large identical pieces of equipment were rolled forward by the scientific team, Ivor turned to face Robbie, winked, his mouth flinched in a regretful smile, and then he set his head back against the rest with unnatural rigidity. The drone of an electronically controlled mechanism heralded the slow creep forward of two metal shapes, roughly resembling oversized oranges, with a couple of segments missing. Each metallic orange glinted and winked in the internal lights of the aircraft, revealing itself to be an array of thousands of ultra-fine needles. These descended upon the faces of Gwen and Ivor and seemed to devour their heads. Robbie watched with gruesome fascination as the ghost images of his grandma and his friend appeared in the relief patterns of displaced needles. A couple of monitors on a wall ran through a stream of data and then stopped on the images of two shaggy individuals. The names beneath one image read Gwen Carroll slash Alvaro Garcia. The other picture boasted Ivan Noon slash Kiki Segundo. Robbie barely had time to read the names before the fine needles began to quiver, then ripple in waves and Robbie dreaded to think what they might be doing to the faces underneath them. Madame Sun tried her hand at a comforting remark. Some of what you are witnessing are syringes injecting specific chemicals into specific muscles or stimulating temporary rampant follicle growth, but much of this is a form of acupuncture. It is a Chinese method and very ancient. In so many ways, the Chinese have always been ahead of their time. Diane and Wanda threw Sun an identical glare that seemed to suggest amusement and contempt all at the same time, without even having to adjust the tilt of an eyebrow. You may think yourself ahead of us, scientist girl, said Diane, but that only makes it easier for us to kick your backside when you falter. For the first time that evening... Diane and Wanda shared a smile at Sun's expense. In that one exchange, Robbie instantly received a clearer understanding about the group dynamics of the Mona Lisas, and he shuddered at the thought of how much it reminded him of the school playgrounds he had known. Ten minutes later, the metallic needle machines drew back from their grotesque embrace. In the place where Gwen Carroll and Ivan Noon had been, were two extremely hairy men, who would not have looked out of place as roadies for some thrash heavy metal band. To all intents and purposes, Robbie's grandmother had transformed into the man, Alvaro Garcia. It is me, sweetie, came Grandma Gwen's voice from the mouth of the hairy gentleman. Well, 
Robbie thought. Surely by anybody's standards, this has to rank as an unusual day. So, Senor Garcia, permit me to recap the details of this deal, said Nestor Soto, theatrically turning towards his group of half a dozen bodyguards who were sniggering like a pack of schoolboys at the back of a class. You will provide me with several thousand kilos of the product, which, from the sample you have offered me, appears to be genuine and of fine quality. With each remembered point, Nestor Soto swung the matchstick in his hand like a conductor with a baton. You will also supply me with transportation, the means to run it and a safe access point into the United States. This is very charitable, senor. Truly, the generosity of Alvaro Garcia runs deep. Gwen Carroll, in the guise of Alvaro Garcia, beamed back personably. Behind this figure sat the outrageously mustachioed Ivan Noon in the persona of Kiki Segundo, who was calculating how fast he could vault out of the sidecar and engage the bodyguards. Nestor Soto was closest to Gwen, but appeared to carry nothing more harmful than a match. The man's muscle would have to be tackled first. In return, I am to... what? Remind me, Mona de la Fuente. A swarthy, brutal bodyguard could hardly get the words out through his broad smile as he repeated the deal. You are to provide a person to pilot this vehicle and use your own networks to distribute it throughout North America, Europe and the rest of the world. It seems to be a very fortunate deal for us, does it not, gentlemen? The six men laughed openly and uttered in unison, Si, General. Do I look three years old, Mono de la Fuente? No, General. Maybe I look like I have tumbled to Earth from Mars only yesterday. No, General. Mona de la Fuente, you are wrong, because the legendary Alvaro Garcia expects me to join him in this deal. Therefore, I must be an alien or a nursing child to give the appearance of being so gullible and stupid. You do not have to join me in this deal, Nestor Soto, replied Alvaro Garcia. I can always take my business to Daniel Vargas. Vargas is nothing but an upstart Judas, seethed Nestor Soto, all remnants of good humour having vanished in a second. I bring him up from the street, train him, let him sleep in my house, eat at my table, become my lieutenant and heir apparent, and how is Nestor Soto repaid? by Vargas setting himself up as competition. But you will do ill, Alvaro Garcia, if you deal with him. Vargas will not be part of this world for long. Nestor Soto took a moment to marshal some composure. Forgive me, senor, no mockery now. Please explain why you would want to offer me this huge quantity of product... At no cost. For you to sell it at such ridiculously low rates that it will destroy the rest of the competition. It is not a new idea, I think, explained Alvaro Garcia. 
The competition will feed on each other, destroy themselves, but you will still be rich. Leaving only you and I left to deal. A monopoly on the market? Indeed. But they will hold me accountable and kill me. I shan't tell them. But if they do find out, I am sure the great Nestor Sato, El Gallo do Palais, the fighting cock himself, will take care of his own business. That is the hidden cost. Nestor Sato considered the idea for a few moments. For a deal to be agreed, we must all shake hands. I should like to see your hands, senor, Nestor asked Kiki Segundo, who was still sat in the sidecar. Ivan Noon, in the guise of Kiki Segundo, waited for a nod from Alvaro Garcia, then slowly placed his pale hands on top of the shell of the sidecar. Nestor seemed pleased and placed the match behind his ear. It is an interesting proposition, Alvaro Garcia, replied Nestor. But, senor, I think I shall take the rest of the product that is in the sidecar of your motorcycle and count myself lucky. Mona de la Fuente, as from this evening, make Alvaro Garcia a myth. Nestor Soto had barely finished uttering the word myth when a trio of guns belonging to the bodyguards around him were instantly trained on the sidecar. But the figure of Kiki Segundo had not reacted at all. And now, although neither Nestor Soto nor Mono de la Fuente could have been aware of it, the three gunmen were no longer able to react to anything either. Madame Sun's synaptic scramblers had silently ensured that the men were no longer on speaking terms with their own brains. They had become about as useful to their boss as statues. Vasily knows his job, Gwen Carroll thought to herself. Ivor was also thinking quickly. Three taken out already, mental note, not to be too upset with Vasily for the intervention. Three more bodyguards, two on either side of Soto. Should be in front of their client, sloppy, probably family rather than professionals. Other man pulling a knife. He's bigger, older, approximately 17 stone. Sato himself still seems to be unarmed. Gwen needs to move back somewhere beside or behind me. No cause for alarm yet. They think they have the upper hand. Thank you, friends, for not shooting them, said Mono de la Fuente, slapping a hand on one of the gunmen. But in the near dark, he did not notice that the bodyguard was rigid and not even blinking. Mono de la Fuente's teeth flashed in the twilight as he reached into a sheath strapped onto his belt and pulled out a large combat knife. You spoiled me. The light was now so dim that the dull black blade of the knife might have been a slice of darkness. Gwen Carroll, as Alvaro Garcia, stepped back beside the sidecar. You first, Alvaro Garcia, or your man. Makes no difference, said Nesta Soto. Mono de la Fuente sucked his teeth in reproach. You should have been quicker, senor, he said, wagging a finger at Kiki Segundo. Your mustachio slows you down, maybe, yes? Gwen Carroll began her rehearsed lines. You would kill unarmed men who came to stretch out the hand of comradeship, asked Alvaro Garcia with mock distress. This is how you do business, Nestor Soto. 
Senor, only last month some school vehicles full of children were destroyed at my hands, boasted Mona de la Fuente as he strode towards the motorbike. So, if you think I give... He clicked his fingers. About your deaths, allow me to prove you wrong. Gwen Carroll glanced at her companion in the sidecar. Ivor, don't, she whispered, breaking character for a moment and speaking English. What? Mona de la Fuente barked back. Even with the descending dark and even under the disguise of Kiki Segundo, Gwen recognized Ivor's look. Her intention had been that there should be no deaths tonight, but by bragging about the destruction of the school buses and the killing of the children within them, Mono de la Fuente had sealed his own fate. Up in the invisible aircraft, the passengers were concentrating upon the hairy Latin American version of Ivor. Everyone but the pilot was following events with unblinking scrutiny. The bodyguards also had a professional interest in studying and learning how Ivor would deal with the situation. An overhead view was not the ideal way to see the action. This was not a cinema, after all. And it would do for their purposes. Then it happened. Ivor was up and out of the sidecar with ferocious speed. The figure with the knife seemed to be distracted by Alvaro Garcia when the attack came, offering Ivor a split-second advantage. From 200 feet above the plateau, it was hard to make out clearly what was occurring, but Ivor appeared to launch himself off the sidecar. Then he swung around his opponent's body, pivoting on the neck, completing three quarters of a turn before taking on two other bodyguards. Robbie watched confused as the figure with the knife remained standing for a second. Then the figure swayed, crumpled and folded like a cloth doll, his head landing in a twisted position that was quite impossible for anyone living. It seemed obscene, Robbie thought, at how quickly a human life could be extinguished. Nestor Soto was running, or something like it, his limbs barely remembered the movements for they had not so much as broken out into a trot for twenty years. Nestor was used to living with fear. Fear of a sniper among the bushes in the garden. Fear of an incendiary device every time a car sparked into life. Fear of literally being stabbed in the back by one of his men. But this was a different quality of fear. It had the character and it had the scent of being hunted. Why weren't the three bodyguards with the guns doing anything? Nestor mumbled to himself as he glanced back at the silhouettes of his three motionless men, their guns still in their outstretched hands. Nestor's two remaining bodyguards were trying to engage with the strange dark figure that dipped, vaulted and swung from man to man in a form of fighting neither of them had ever experienced. From a little distance and in the falling light... Nestor tried to drive the thought from his head that this adversary might not be human at all. After some scrabbling around in his pockets, Nestor remembered that the match was behind his ear. He stopped, flicked the match against a tiny strip of sandpaper on his fingernail and watched the flame flare up in near darkness as the phosphorus ignited. Nestor held it aloft like a torchbearer, knowing that the action would draw attention to his position, but his secret gunmen were his only hope now. And yet, 
the twilit plateau showed no indication of any snipers. No muzzle flash, no crack of bullets breaking the sound barrier. Even the silence of night seemed astonished. It did not take long for the silence to become ominous. The wind hissed through the coarse grass of the high plateau. The stars seemed cold and remote. Olena de Thinner, the place Nestor loved so much, the very basilla where he and his beloved Nini had been married, the plateau from where the plane had taken off to take them on their honeymoon tour of the continent, all of it now became alien and threatening to him. The only silhouettes Nestor could make out against the horizon were the three still gunmen, the motorbike, and Alvaro Garcia. No one else had been left standing. Nestor Soto guessed he had been left alone to face the diminutive figure of Alvaro Garcia, as well as the army of muscle that must have taken out all of Nestor's best men. It was some consolation to Nestor that he was going to meet his end up here, in this most precious part of the country he adored. Alvaro Garcia revved up the motorbike once more, just as Nestor felt a strong, agile force scale his body. The weight of the man, or the thing, on his back brought the stout drugs lord to his knees. Nestor felt a hand reach around and grip a specific point on his throat, which made his pulse beat wildly beneath the unknown fingers. These fingers then tilted his head upward. Above them, a sleek, shining skycraft of a type Nestor had never seen before suddenly emerged from the fabric of the night. It glided down onto the plateau with almost no noise. A square fracture appeared in the hull that showed itself to be a door which, in turn, became a ramp as it tilted down towards the earth. From out of the belly of the ship strode a group of individuals who appeared to be missing large segments of their bodies. Coasting along between them was a futuristic-looking vessel of about twenty-five feet long. Nestor Soto recognised what the smaller craft might be, but also believed he was witnessing an alien visitation. Carefully planting the new vessel on the plateau, the individuals with the missing bodies retrieved the discreet lift that had carried it and marched it back into the skycraft. You see, Nestor Soto, you really are out of your depth, declared Alvaro Garcia above the throaty chortle of the motorbike engine. We can accomplish things, such things beyond your dreams, El Gallo de Pele. You are a mere fighting cock amongst gladiators and predators, no match. I know you will keep our deal, or we will visit you one final time. Nestor was hardly aware that the match was burning the tip of his fingers. He watched the motorbike and sidecar rumble out of his field of view to somewhere behind him. The grip on his throat was released and the weight sprang off his back. Nestor stared with helpless childlike wonder as the headlamp of the motorbike swept up the ramp of the skycraft and vanished. In the next moment, the whole aircraft appeared to dissolve into the night, leaving only a tug of wind and a rippling shimmer across the stars. Nunu, a voice cracked over the earpiece. My gun! It does not appear to be working! 
How has Alvaro Garcia been able to take out all of my men except the harmless fool with the replica rifle who I really wanted killed? Nestor said out loud as he rose to his feet. Mario, si Nunu, you're an idiot. Si Nunu. This really was a night of education for Nestor Soto. He had just learned that he was not the biggest fish in the ocean. He was a dogfish hunting around a wreck or a rock pool, given grace to do so by the huge hunters coming in on the tide. And now he was left with a submarine full of illegal drugs on top of a high mountain plateau while his men lay unconscious around him. A submarine. How was he ever going to get the submarine down the mountain? And how was he ever going to find someone to pilot a submarine? Then a thought occurred to Nestor. You like the sea, Mario. Sea, Nunu. It seems I may have a use for you after all. <laughs>